This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. On last week's episode, we discussed with the lawyer and author Michael Waldman whether we should still consider the United States Supreme Court a democratic institution. Since then, America's highest court published its final judgments for this session, which proved a blow to civil rights activists as the six conservative judges set about a series of changes that could reshape the foundations of American society. Killing race-conscious college admissions, shelving President Biden's student loan forgiveness program, and siding with an evangelical Christian website designer who doesn't want to create websites for same-sex marriages. Joe Biden was stinging in his criticism of the Supreme Court. The dissent states in today's decision, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress, end of quote. I agree with that statement from the dissent. But as the court's decision sank in, and as Americans went off to celebrate the 4th of July weekend, progressives voiced their anger at what they see as a lack of determination to fight back by fellow Democrats and the Biden administration. So what can be done? And is there enough political will to do it? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. You know, I think I'm ruined by cynicism, but you know, this court uh, did deliver a few surprises. Moira Donegan is a columnist for Guardian US who's written about the impact some of the latest decisions from the conservative dominated Supreme Court will have on the ground. You know, the Dobbs decision, which eliminated the national right to an abortion in the United States and overturned the very important precedent, Roe v. Wade, uh, sparked really phenomenal amounts of national outrage and uh, has, of course, also led to, you know, just unspeakably large quantities of human suffering. Uh, And that has decimated the court's public approval rating. You know, it uh, really, people are beginning to be very much more avowed and vocal about their understanding of the court as a Republican captured political entity. And, you know, this then follows a series of really kind of maximalist decisions from the court, the less surprising ones this term, such as the elimination of affirmative action, race conscious admissions meant to diversify American colleges and universities, a massive blow to LGBT civil rights in a ruling that allows business owners to discriminate against gay people on free speech grounds. And of course, the elimination 
of President Biden's student debt cancellation program. So let's get go through the decisions uh, handed down by the court in uh, in recent days, one by one. Let's drill into those. Uh, we talked last week on the podcast about the decision to uh, end affirmative action in colleges and universities, that, that being shorthand for the notion that race can play a part in the decisions, the admission decisions colleges can make. They can redress historic imbalances. And sure enough, as we expected in our conversation on the podcast last week, the Supreme Court voted six to three to end it. It really does knock down pretty much all of the admissions policies that consider race right now on the basis of diversity and changes the game really for students trying to get into colleges and universities. And then on Friday came a decision affecting another area, distinct area of uh, civil rights. And this was this decision taken in a case brought by a Colorado website designer. The First Amendment prohibits the government from forcing any of us from saying anything we don't want to say. At the same time, civil rights laws in this country say that businesses that are open to the public have to serve everybody. Uh, but what the court said today is that businesses, in some cases, can refuse to serve certain customers if doing so would force them to say something they don't want to say, like a business who designs websites a stationer, maybe even uh, someone who is landscaping your yard. If that is an expressive, customized and tailored service, Neil Gorsuch said that the government cannot force you uh, to do that business with someone that you don't want to do business with or something you don't want to say. Why don't you just talk us through exactly what the case involving this, that specific individual, because we should make this point, that the Supreme Court do not make sort of decisions in the abstract about matters of sort of rights and philosophy. They're rather specific human beings' cases are brought before them. They have to judge. So what was this case, the individual website designer, uh, what was she asking for and what did the court decide? So uh, you're talking about a Colorado woman named Lori Smith. She is an evangelical Christian who has a belief in her words that same-sex marriages are false. That's the word she uses, that they're false. Her contention was that Colorado's civil rights law, which says that businesses open to the public cannot discriminate on the basis of a series of identity factors, including sexual orientation, uh, when they are serving the public. They can't say, no, I will not serve you because of your race. I will not serve you because of your religion. I will not serve you because you're gay. But Lori Smith wanted the ability to discriminate against gay couples uh, when she made her website. She did not want to ever have to make a website for a gay wedding. This is an entirely hypothetical case because nobody has ever asked her to make a website for a gay wedding. <laughs> There was some brief filed by her attorneys who are uh, part of a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a sort of litigation shop that does a lot of anti-gay and anti-abortion lawsuits, claiming that Lori Smith had in fact been asked to make a gay website by a man who had, you know, reached out to her and said, you know, one day I might, you know, I'm getting married to my partner. I would like to get some invitations made and perhaps also a website. And when a reporter reached out to the man who had allegedly made this request, you know, his name and phone number was uh, included, he had never heard of such a thing. He goes, I did not make any such request. I am in fact heterosexual and have been married for a long time. Uh, so there's, there's some speculation that that was invented. Uh, but you know, there was no actual injury 
it's fascinating this because in a way you could imagine a court with a different kind of uh, mind might have thrown it out for being a bit flaky on these basic facts. But in, instead, they were quite determined to make a decision and, and, and decision one particular way. Yeah, this is a recurring theme we've seen by this court is that questions of whether a plaintiff actually has standing to sue, questions of whether the lawsuit is workable on procedural grounds are sort of irrelevant. And sometimes, you know, facts of the underlying case are deemed irrelevant. And, you know, this court will get to the merits question if it wants to. So in this case, the court wrote in a quite you know, expansive opinion by Justice Neil Gorsuch that Smith had a right to refuse service to gay couples on the grounds that a website design is expressive, that it is, uh, you know, akin to an art form, that it has uh, content that she would object to and therefore she can't be compelled to make it. So it, it threatens to undo quite a lot of civil rights law because now any business can claim that their commercial conduct is quote unquote expressive in order to get a license to discriminate against disfavored groups. That, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, you can see, obviously, this is a direct uh, attack on the rights of the LGBTQ community. That's very direct. But the implications are go beyond that. I mean, it was a staple of movies in the 40s, 50s and 60s about discrimination, the scenario in which, you know, a black couple might try and register in a hotel and would be turned away. And obviously that was then struck down and seen as being obvious discrimination. I'm just wondering that now, given this judgment, what is to stop somebody running a hotel saying, no, I don't want black guests, I don't want Jewish guests, you know, the golf clubs that were restricted and didn't have members from minorities what is to stop them saying that this is a right to their kind of expression in the same way as the notional designer of websites in this case well we don't have to look to the movies we can look to supreme court case law you know one of the most famous civil rights cases concerned a hotel the heart of atlanta hotel that wanted to be able to discriminate and not accommodate black guests and you know seemingly what this court has now opened the uh, door to is for that hotel to make the claim that by accommodating black guests or interracial couples or, you know, any kind of identity that they disapprove of, that by accommodating them in their commercial activity, they are thereby expressing approval, which they cannot be compelled to do. You know, it ha it is a, um, a decision with kind of frightening implications. And in her dissent, which I thought was quite moving, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, an Obama appointee who uh, votes with the liberals, wrote about, you know, instances of kind of heartbreaking discrimination. She talked about a gay couple who had been together for many years. And when one of them passed away, in their grief, they were confronted with a funeral home. This man, this grieving husband and his, his family was confronted with a funeral home that refused to host the funeral of his husband because they didn't want to suggest approval of a gay lifestyle. You know, I think that what will ultimately happen is that this court will get a case that they don't like. They will say, 
oh no, you know, discriminating against an interracial couple goes too far or discriminating against families with adopted children goes too far. And it will be a matter not of legal protections and civil rights, but of, you know, them retrofitting the law around their personal preferences, which is a problem. Let's just talk about another judgment that came. It doesn't strike quite that sort of visceral accord, perhaps, but it will affect many, many lives. And that is on the plan that Joe Biden had to relieve uh, student debt. I mean, what a huge issue for Democrats, very important as part of mo- mobilizing the coalition that elected Joe Biden, bringing in younger voters. The Biden administration plan to forgive federal student loans does not hold up. They're blocking that. They're agreeing with the lower court that that was not within their congressional authority. Uh, You yourself summed it up in a tweet saying the Supreme Court rules that millions of Americans now hold $10,000 more debt than they did yesterday or about one-tenth the cost of a private plane trip to Alaska, referring there to those allegations against um, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, uh, who is said to have been on the receiving end of high-dollar hospitality and travel, including private jet travel to Alaska. So that's going to really hit people in their pockets. Um, it's a very direct uh, you know, slapdown of a decision made by an elected official, namely the president. What was the legal argument there that the court majority deployed to strike down the move on student debt and effectively make a whole lot of Americans more indebted than they were before? In order to forgive student debt, Joe Biden and his administration used something that is called the HEROES Act, which is a post 9-11 bit of legislation that gave extensive powers to executive branch administrative agencies, including the Department of Education, to do things to change their own financial arrangements uh, in moments of national emergency. And uh, one of the things that this act does is give the Secretary of Education really expansive power to nullify or alter Uh, student debt in moments of a national emergency. Well, COVID was a national emergency. And President Biden used the national emergency to, you know, direct his Secretary of Education to forgive up to $10,000 in student and federally backed student debt for ordinary borrowers and up to $20,000 for the recipients of Pell Grants, who are, you know, uh, people who go to college, usually from a marginalized or impoverished background. But, you know, the Supreme Court used a novel, new, and very ill-defined legal understanding called uh, the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh, And it is an idea that executive agencies like the Department of Education do not have the authority to make decisions on something that are of, you know, great political importance. And who decides what is of great political importance? Well, the Supreme Court does, right? Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court has granted itself through this novel legal theory, uh, the authority to just sort of nullify actions of an elected branch. And this goes to this constant argument between the branches of who is exceeding their authority, who is guilty of an overreach of executive power in this case. 
And that's a perennial, isn't it? With, I mean, you had it as an argument that ran over Obamacare, uh, the notion that the executive branch, Barack Obama in that case, and healthcare had overreached his power. And that's what sort of conservatives, either on the court or even in Republicans in Congress, they're constantly making that argument, you know, beyond the sort of more subtle jurisprudential points here, is that essentially the core of the argument that the six conservative or right-wing judges on the court are essentially making, which is, uh, you know, putting a constraint on governmental uh, power? Well, you know, it's interesting because the court has very different understandings of executive power based on who that executive is. So during the Trump administration, there was a case called Trump versus Hawaii, which was a state challenge to Trump's Muslim ban. Measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. In fulfilling a campaign promise, Donald Trump imposed a abrupt, very draconian immigration ban on anybody coming into the United States from a small list of Muslim-majority countries. I think it was seven nations. And the Supreme Court said that Donald Trump had the authority to make that claim, that that was a bit of you know policy power that was within the purview of the executive, right? So Donald Trump can make unilateral immigration policy changes uh, that, you know, are certainly quite controversial. But Joe Biden can't make debt policy changes that are controversial. You know, it's, um, it's a theory of executive power that changes based on the party of the executive. It all then comes down to this. How do the Democrats respond to this big agenda uh, and big slew of decisions by this court striking down often cherished uh, parts of the sort of political settlement in the United States. So far, I mean, what are the signs for how, for example, the president, the Democratic president, what, what is his response to the decisions that have come down so far, including this student debt decision? You know, the the response from Joe Biden in particular, and I would say from the Biden administration more broadly, has been really muted, uh, inconsistent, surprisingly uh, tepid on abortion. Joe Biden is has not been a sufficient ally. He said recently, I'm not big on abortion, to which I think, you know, a lot of abortion rights advocates will say, yes, we've noticed he has sort of gained a little bit more attentiveness to the issue this term. Uh, he was willing, after the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision uh, eliminating race-conscious college admissions policies, to say, you know, this is, I think his phrase was, This is not a normal court. That is a, not a normal court. And, you know, it seems like a, a increasing amount of willingness to acknowledge that, you know, this is a Supreme Court that will unilaterally veto any substantial policy progress that the Biden administration wants to make, you know? You know, these Republican officials just couldn't bear the thought of providing relief for working class, middle class Americans. But there's not a lot of appetite from Joe Biden for any meaningful kind of intervention or solution or really even conversation about how to solve this problem uh, that is, you know, increasingly threatening American democracy. You know, after the affirmative action decision, even though he was willing to call the Supreme Court, you know, quote unquote, not normal, he also immediately shut down 
any questions about court expansion, the theory that, you know, the president has constitutionally the ability to add more justices to the Supreme Court. So why don't you? He said, no, 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 that would politicize the court. And I think that people who have lost their right to an abortion, who have lost their right to be treated equally in commercial life, who have lost the ability to be their full selves uh, and in college admissions and to try and get access to that education, who have now been saddled with more debt, I think those people would say, you know, it's already kind of political. I mean, let's just talk about what the possible fixes could be here. I mean, I think already Joe Biden has come up with some specific sort of policy response on the student debt point. First, I'm announcing today a new path consistent with today's ruling to provide student debt relief to as many borrowers as possible, as quickly as possible. We will ground this new approach in a different law than my original plan, the so-called Higher Education Act. But just more broadly, when you've got a court that is this conservative, right-wing, whatever way you want to put it. What are the suite of options, if any, that uh, Democrats can uh, resort to to fight that? One of them is the thing we talked about it on our on this podcast very soon uh, around the Dobbs decision and, in fact, leading up to it, I think. The notion of, as you say, expanding the court so you do create more seats on the court and that way you can have, you know, a, a Democratic president, Democratic Senate at the moment put some liberal judges on the court. I mean, you just told us that Joe Biden does not like that idea. Absent that, uh, apart from some very, very long-term fixes, I'm just wondering what is available. I say long-term because in a way you think about what the Republicans did, you know, they were planning for decades to get to make sure they had Republicans in the Senate and in the White House at the same time who were minded to put conservatives on the court. And all their dreams came true at once when Donald Trump was president. And they got not one, not two, but three uh, conservative judges on the court. And that was the fruit in some ways of 30, 40 years of organising by Republicans. Do Democrats now need to think like that? And if they do, do they have that much time to do it? The the short answer is no, there's not time. Uh, Just tons of people will experience incalculable suffering because of this court. That is a terrible fact and I think a shame that we have to live with, but there are options to mitigate how terrible this could become, right? So aside from court expansion, there are a number of opportunities for court reform. Uh, There is, you know, expansion is historically thought of as politically unpopular because it generated a bit of political backlash the last time it was proposed uh, when FDR found that the court was blocking all of his New Deal programs. He threatened to add seats to the court. The public didn't like that, but it also changed the court's behavior. Uh, That was almost 100 years ago. I think the politics have shifted uh, and there is an option to repoliticize the number of seats on the court and to make it clear to the American public that that is not, you know, it is not fixed by God at nine. It is a policy choice to have it be nine. It could be more. But, you know, there are other options as well. There's a lot of popular support for term limits. These are people who are not elected, who have no accountability, formal accountability measures that are really accessible while they are in their seats on the court, uh, and who can't be removed. They 
either have to voluntarily retire or die. There's there's no way to get somebody off the court aside from an act of God. Uh, and the public doesn't like that. They think it breeds corruption. They've seen that it brings corruption with the reporting we've seen over the past year. The Supreme Court did not used to have as much independence and power as it does. They now choose which cases they're going to hear, and they have basically absolute discretion to choose to hear a case or decline to hear it. That was not always so. For a long time in America's history, it was Congress that decided what the Supreme, what cases the Supreme Court was going to hear. Uh, we could, you know, take back control of sertoriari and and give that back to the elected branch. Uh, there is an option to do something that used to be done where the, the justices would, quote unquote, ride ride circuit, which means that they would go and serve on lower courts. And, you know, possibly even we could have a system in which judges from lower courts come and serve some time temporarily as Supreme Court justices. You know, there's lots of ways that this institution can be changed to make it more responsive to the democratically elected branches and more in line with the values of the American people. No, those are very um, th- you know, thought-provoking possibilities, all of them. But just explain to us what it would take. I mean, who would have to ap- agree with that? Presumably, you'd have to get the presidency, but also the House and the Senate all to be on board to make even the change, for example, like term limits, because it would require, wouldn't it, a tweak to the Constitution? You'd have to have the approval of state legislatures and assemblies all around the country as well. It's a big and hard ask, isn't it? Well, you know, the the House has limited uh, oversight role over the Supreme Court. It would really be a problem of the Senate. And yeah, it would require votes that aren't there right now. But this is a political project. You know, uh, public opinion, the behavior of senators, these things aren't set in stone. They are shaped by circumstances. And what we really need to start seeing is a national conversation on the left led by figures of authority like Joe Biden, who have the bully pulpit, to really reckon with what this court has become and start to talk about the emergency, about what's going to happen to American lives, what's already happening to American lives because of this court's unchecked power. You know, we're not powerless. Uh, We can change the way people think about this. We can change the way they vote about it because we can engage them in a discussion of this reality. That's the kind of leadership that's just not coming from Joe Biden right now. Yeah, and I would suggest that the Republican side did actually have that kind of focus among their leaders when they were hell-bent for two, three, four decades to overturn abortion rights. They did approach it, obviously completely different intention, but with the kind of clarity that you're describing. I'm just wondering to put ourselves in the heads of Joe Biden and his team in the White House. I mean, they will understand the the conundrum. They will get the problem. Presumably, they don't want to go near all this stuff because it's very easy Uh, for this to be cast as sort of extreme or radical to be messing with the Supreme Court. And they are all about winning over those independent or moderate voters, uh, swing voters in swing states in 2024, who often tell pollsters they don't like that stuff. They didn't like it when they thought that Trump was riding roughshod over the Constitution, and it could easily be cast that this would be Joe Biden doing the same thing. Yeah, you know, Jonathan, you're kind of describing this um, idea among political strategists, particularly in the Democratic Party, the idea that there's a middle, a middle that left the Democrats and can be won back. 
And the fact of the matter is, is that's just not empirically borne out. There's not much of a middle in America anymore. The people who approve of what the Supreme Court is doing are already voting for the Republicans and they're not going to be won over back to the Democrats. What you do have, in fact, is a, a depressed Democratic base, people who vote year after year and don't see any policy changes. They see their rights and freedoms just being taken away over and over again uh, because the Democrats are afraid of power and unwilling to make these bold stances. So I think, you know, there's two political sides to every decision that the Biden administration makes. I think they're weighing the idea of turning people off who approve of the constitutional arrangement a little too heavily and, you know, undercounting the desire of, you know, people who've been disenfranchised, hurt, made less free by this court to see some leadership and and to have a defender. And absent that kind of effort, your forecast presumably for the coming term of the Supreme Court the next year or so will be more decisions of this kind. You know, at the end of this term, the Supreme Court announced some of its cert grants, the cases it's going to hear in uh, the coming term. And I think one that really alarmed a lot of people and particularly a lot of feminists was a case in which the Supreme Court will determine whether it is constitutional for men who have been found guilty of abusing their wives and girlfriends to own guns. Uh, this is a longstanding federal law that prohibits gun ownership by people with domestic violence restraining orders. Uh, and it is a shown to save lives. You know, men who have access to guns who abuse are much more likely to shoot and kill uh, their victims. And if the Supreme Court decides that it is unconstitutional for those men to lose their right to to carry firearms. I think that will it's not it's not an exaggeration to say that that will be a death sentence for thousands of American women. You know, it could get much worse before it gets better. Yeah, um, Moira, we, as you know, we always do like to ask our guests a what else question on this podcast, something very different. Uh, I want to ask you about Twitter um, because you tweeted your new blue sky account uh recently uh i wanted to know why you did that and whether that's because you're making a judgment that twitter has had its day and that you know with these changes that happened in the last uh few days the you know the ownership of elon musk we why don't you tell us what prompted you to announce that you're perhaps moving your social media activity elsewhere yeah so twitter has been an invaluable resource for journalists and writers. It is something to which I owe, you know, much of my career is <laughs> to Twitter. And since Elon Musk purchased the site and fired many of its engineers and changed its terms of service, you know, the functionality of the site has really deteriorated. Last weekend, it it sort of stopped working entirely. It seems to be somewhat back. It is prioritizing a very specific ideology and sort of low quality content. There's a lot of, you know, in the replies to my tweets, it's it's people trying to sell you crypto and bots posting pornography. You know, it's become less useful. And it's not clear 
what, if anything, will replace it. I'm on Blue Sky. You can find me there. I'm having fun. Uh, it hasn't quite gotten off the ground. It doesn't have anything like the user base Twitter does. Facebook has recently announced that it is launching a competitor, which I believe is called Threads. But Threads has, you know, Facebook style data collection that does not comply with German law. So its ability to launch in the EU and become a truly global brand seems kind of dubious. You know, it's not clear that uh, anything will replace Twitter. But in the meantime, you know, I'm going outside a lot. <laughs> I'm touching grass. I'm going on hikes. Uh, I'm enjoying a, a less online life for the time being. Moira Donegan, thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of Politics Weekly America. Thank you, Jonathan. And that is all from me for this week. Moira's new podcast, In Bed with the Right, which looks at how the right sees sex and gender, will be out next week. So search for that wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to listen to Thursday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, as my colleague Sam Levine explains more of the ramifications of last week's Supreme Court decisions and how they might influence 2024. Lastly, I want to direct you towards Guardian Jobs. Guardian Jobs specialises in high-quality roles in sustainability, government, social care, charity, education. You'll be spoilt for choice. So search Guardian Jobs to find what could be your next big role. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, with help from Hannah Abraham and Holly Chaxfield. The executive producer this week was Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.